Most of the Japanese companies know that they cannot just stay in Japan. That's Satoshi Shinada, a general partner for Keppel Africa Ventures. And some of them are already active in Asia, but they are looking beyond Asia to expand. I think access to African market is very important strategy for most of the Japanese companies. So lots of Japanese companies are interested in how the new innovation coming out of Africa to solve the issue of Africa could potentially be actually applied to Japan. Keppel is a Japanese venture firm investing out of Lagos and Nairobi, which in the past year or so has become one of the most active venture capital firms on the continent. Their level of activity and their relationship with Japanese corporations, who have demonstrated an interest in African tech through Keppel, makes this a topic worth exploring further. This season, we've talked about other emerging markets across the global south. We've talked about China. In this episode, let's talk about Japan. You're listening to The Flip, the podcast exploring more contextually relevant stories from entrepreneurs around Africa. Welcome back to The Flip. I'm your host, Justin Norman. Keppel Africa Ventures is a Japanese-backed venture firm that was established in 2019. And since that time, they've made over 55 early-stage investments across eight African countries. So I spoke to two of their general partners to gain some perspective on their activity on the continent. Hi. I'm Satoshi. I'm Rio, and I'm our partner of Geographic Adventures. Satoshi and Rio, based in Lagos and Nairobi, respectively, have been doing business on the continent for quite some time. I started traveling to Africa when I was an undergrad student in Tokyo. And since then, I have been involved in business with Africa for the past 10 years. So like, like Satoshi, I've been, I've been doing things related to Africa for quite some time. After both attending business school in the U.S., they ultimately came together by a third of Keppel's partners, Japanese venture investor Takahiro Kanzaki, who had built up a successful investing track record in Japan. He was pretty satisfied with it, and he wanted to expand that practice. So he was looking for opportunities, and he spotted on Africa as the next market. And Taka recruited Rio to set up operations in Nairobi. And after I did a half a year of investing, I, I got a lot of inquiries from outside Kenya, which I cannot handle. But I saw a lot of opportunities, especially in Nigeria. And then I had known Satoshi personally. That's kind of crazy Japanese guy who has been in Africa, <laughs> who went to who went to USMBA, but also he's interested in Africa. Actually, there's only a small group of people who go to US business school from Japan. And if you want to find somebody uh, in that group who is interested in Africa, there's only a few. Like there are only four people. Uh, or five people that we know, <laughs> and then two of, two of them were, were us. <laughs> so we got together. So Satoshi joined Keppel to set up operations in Lagos. Now, to understand Keppel's strategic objectives first requires us to discuss a bit more about the macro situation in Japan. First of all, like Japanese market is aging, and our economy is not growing at all. And there's so much legacy in the existing industries and existing business. Most of the Japanese companies know that they cannot just stay in Japan. And some of them are already active in Asia, but they are looking beyond Asia to expand and to find a market where they can expand their business. So I think access to African market is very important 
strategy for most of the Japanese companies. Japan, in many respects, is almost the complete opposite of many African countries in terms of population growth, age of population, and economic trends and forecasts. And so, like many others, Japan is looking at the African growth story as an opportunity. However, it's worth mentioning that Japanese corporations haven't necessarily found success in their past attempts to do business on the continent. So I've seen lots of cases where Japanese companies enter Nigerian market, but they had to pull out in a few years. And so just going into the existing industry in Africa is not, not an easy option for the Japanese companies. However, now they're looking at startups. And at the same time, Japanese venture investors in particular, perhaps with the exception of SoftBank, which is another situation altogether, are looking for markets where they can make their mark. So they're looking at Africa as a new market and partnership with startups makes sense because there is a less competition with other foreign companies. There is so much capital held by the Japanese companies and they have established lots of corporate venture capitals in Japan. Most of these corporate venture capitals are investing in, in Silicon Valley startups and actually, while they have money, they don't have insider network. They are not in the you know Silicon Valley community. They are like still outsider. They don't have access to the best deals in Silicon Valley. So for the Japanese companies, I think it makes more sense to allocate their money to Africa. Of course, they, they go to Southeast Asia first. But I think now... They are in a transition stage to go beyond Asia. And the role that Japanese corporates in particular play in funding venture capital and early stage startups is perhaps a unique opportunity for startups on the continent. If you look at the startups in Africa, they are usually, you know, struggling to find global partnership. Most of the startups are looking for something beyond just money. So I think there is a great fit for the Japanese companies. And actually, that is what Japanese companies are looking for. In, in Africa. And so part of the work for Keppel becomes investing in and working with African startups and connecting them to Japanese companies who are explicitly looking for innovations and partnerships from emerging markets. We can understand what Japanese companies want. We can just translate uh, what's happening on the ground here in Africa and then pass it down to Japanese companies. And also we are committed to growing companies that are ready to partner with Japanese companies. With us investing in them and also help them grow together with us, we believe that we can take them to the, to the stage where they, they are ready to partner with Japanese companies and from there they can accelerate their growth. This, I would say, is distinctly different from Chinese investors, who we heard from two episodes ago, who are looking to bring Chinese business and innovation to Africa. Japanese investors and companies, on the other hand, are interested in taking innovations from Africa back to Japan and other markets in which these companies are operating. I spoke about like how the Japanese companies failed to enter African markets with their products in the past. If Japanese companies develop the product or service by themselves, it tends to be like overspec, overpriced. But like if they make a partnership with the startups from Africa who can develop the product or service that are relevant to the African consumers, then it's a good partnership for the Japanese companies. And here's an example of a partnership born out of Keppel bridging the gap between Japanese corporates and startups in Africa. So there's one company called Pago Energy that we invested in, and they got investment from a Japanese company called Saisan together with us. So we participated together with this company called Saisan. Pago Energy is a startup based in Kenya 
that has developed a smart meter liquid petroleum gas cylinder to enable consumers in Kenya to use LPG gas on a pay-as-you-go basis. And Saisan is one of Japan's largest LPG distributors in the country and throughout Southeast Asia. And uh, the reason why they invested in Pago is actually to collaborate with them and they bring back technology Pago's technology to reinforce their business operations. They want to streamline and enhance the productivity of their operations of LPG distribution. It's a really great case study of an African startup building a localized solution for African consumers whose technology has application and opportunity far outside of African markets and including for big corporates in developed markets. So what's interesting is that as a group, this company has more than 1 billion revenue every year and they have been profitable for like forever. Like it's it's very lucrative business in Japan. Even with that company, the technology that Pago has developed is like super, super innovative and it's super useful. And they want to test it so that they can be they can be ahead of the competition with other LPG distributors. Like in a country, in a development country like Japan, have never seen such a solution, and then actually they are way behind Pago. <laughs> so it's super great to see that African company is developing such an innovative solution that can be applied to developed countries. So let's explore this example of the Pago Energy and Saison partnership a bit further. My name is Nick Quintong. I am the CEO and one of the co-founders at Pago Energy. And our primary focus is to expand uh, the addressable market for LPG, that's cooking gas. It's the nature of both the hardware and the software solutions that enable Pago Energy to access a new market. And that perhaps is what makes their technology attractive to a corporate like Saison as well. Our technology is basically a hardware and a software solution. On the hardware side, it's a smart meter that can attach to any gas cylinder and turn into a pay-as-you-go device. So rather than having to buy gas by the cylinder in large volumes, you can now buy gas in small amounts, which is more affordable for the mass market in sub-Saharan Africa and other similar markets. The second part of our solution is software, which is taking a lot of the unique information that we're getting now from the household and from that meter to make the supply chain a lot more efficient, to ultimately reduce the cost of gas and, and improve the, the service that, that customers receive. The technology is ultimately enabling Pago and LPG distributors to better understand their customers and improve their logistics and operations. And so now that we know uh, who the customer is and we have a generally a more sticky relationship with that customer, obviously the cost of acquisition goes down with a higher retention. Because we now have information coming from the household around the consumption, around the fuel level uh, in the cylinder, we can get much more efficient with the number of cylinders that are out there in the market. The way that is experienced by the gas company is a significantly lower working capital cost, and also it reduces their, their general kind of logistics and maintenance costs. And in doing so, the cost savings are then passed down to the consumer. And that will ultimately lead to lower unit costs for customers. What the technology is providing is actually a way to reduce the cost to deliver that LPG over time. Gas companies want to reduce their prices because they know it will expand you know, the addressable market for LPG, but they're kind of hamstrung by how inefficient the supply chain is. So I think in the future, there is an opportunity to really use the, the information coming from the household to drive some big efficiencies in a supply chain that really hasn't had very much innovation over the last the last 50 years, and that will ultimately 
lead to lower unit costs for customers. And in the commodity business, Pago has seen a huge amount of retention. We have well over 90% retention of our customers. I think the average for the industry could be maybe 20%, maybe even less, right? So huge improvement on retention, a huge shift from the status quo. In exploring the partnership between Saison and Pago and the former's investment in the latter, to start, there were a certain set of market conditions that aligned Saison with the opportunity Pago's technology gave them to better serve their current customers. One of the first things to note is that not every market you know, is right for piped gas. And so kind of rapidly growing urban centers, it's really difficult to put in piped gas and then also you know, dangerous to put in piped gas infrastructure. And some areas, it's just you know, just because of the geography, right? And so in Japan, there's a significant amount of households that are on propane or butane cylinders because it's, it's kind of mountainous, rocky areas or, or rural areas. This makes a lot more sense to do cylinders, which is why you know, our, our technology makes sense. The same thing you're seeing in markets in Southeast Asia and even more mature markets like, like Japan. And for Saison and Pago, they share a similar vision for the opportunities for Pago's technology. With Saison, we've got a great partner because I think we have a shared vision for where this technology can go. The first thing that they got excited about was still our kind of core smart meter technology and what it means for expanding the addressable market for LPG, which is unlocking all these households that are they're buying you know, dirty fuels and moving them over to gas. But the second area is around the IoT aspect, which is well, we have information not just flowing from the household, but also at different points in the supply chain. How do we put that all together to create kind of this virtual pipeline where we're being really efficient about getting gas to and from the household? And this will lead to new service models that weren't possible at the household level, new business models we can do, you know, more of a post-pay system or more gas kind of as a service rather than and right now it's quite transactional. So there's a lot of opportunities they think longer term that make sense beyond just the the initial one. And again, and this is obviously can go back to to a mature market like in, in Japan, where it's just driving efficiencies to a part of the population or to other markets like Bangladesh, Vietnam. And so far, what's made the partnership work is the share of responsibilities between each party. I think with Saison, it's the division of labor is quite clear. They've got deep domain expertise in moving fuel from the port down to the household, but they really defer to us on the technology side. We've worked really well together on using their local knowledge around market prices, around how the margin moves to the supply chain. I think that division of labor piece is, is key. As always, the Flip's executive producer and B-Mike, Shio Folowio, and I sat down to have a discussion on this week's episode. And in particular, we were really interested in this case study and its implications for the opportunity to better connect markets, as was done here by Keppel Africa Ventures. Take a listen. I think my takeaway in particular is, while, while it's obviously difficult to have a unilateral discussion about like what the view of Japanese investors is broadly, and obviously it's going to vary on a you know investor by investor or deal by deal basis. But I think the biggest takeaway for me in particular is just like broadening the the opportunity set and this pay go deal while you know, I don't know if it's the exception or the rule or whatever it is, but like it's a Japanese corporate explicitly saying we're looking to Africa for innovation because it applies to our core business. And, you know, there's there's an interesting thought experiment about like where else is there sort of latent opportunity like this? And 
you know, might this episode spark something? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously everything is, again, like on a case-by-case basis, but I think it's a story worth sharing. 100%. I, I, I think it's um, super interesting, and I think this is a wonderful case study in, in the, the opportunities that exist around that. And I guess one way that you might look at it or, or what might be worth talking about is if you were an operator right now in a fairly early stage or late stage, whatever stage, how would you go about teasing out? So how would you work backwards you know, to see that opportunity? If anything, it just underscores the value of the bridges that a firm like Keppel is building, right? Like I, I'd have to imagine that a Saison investment does not get done without Keppel connecting the dots. And then, you know, perhaps that's, that's the question is like, how ought we to foster more dot connectors between these seemingly disparate markets where, you know, like I said, latent opportunity may exist? Yeah, no, I feel you. I guess what I'm trying to get out of all the, the distinction that I might make is that is it is connecting the dots seems like the easiest part of it. It's like being in a even the, the dots being like visible for someone to be able to connect. Do you understand the difference? It's not important because they can connect the dots. It's important because they have visibility. They've created a, a conversation. Yeah, it's important because they know what the dots are on both sides of the relationship. Yeah, exactly. So I like that. I also like this case study as positioning from a positioning perspective. I think very often the positioning of the continent is either charity or this like next billion consumer thing. I think this opens the door for a different kind of positioning, which is around uh, innovation. So one other thing I think that's an interesting question in this context is like, so there's still a lot of work to be done. It sounded like from Keppel's point of view, just in sort of educating the Japanese ecosystem. And it's it's almost like, you know, the same question that I've been asking sort of hypothetically for such a long time is like, how do you convert intrigue into investment and hand-holding and market entry. And it's a difficult thing to do at scale, especially when there's a scarcity of those who are able to see the dots like we've been talking about, right? But, you know, perhaps it just goes to show like how slow and and long of a journey we're on in in this context to talk about like capturing interest. Yeah, 100%. Where where, where would you say there was an example of these kind of relationships? Actually, to be honest, like, um, trying to think of where where you see this phenomenon happening a lot. So this phenomenon of exporting innovation, if you think about it, right, innovation exports is the business of China and America, right? We can agree on that, right? And then that then begs the question, is it a realistic endeavor to want to compete on that level? And, you know, I, I, I don't think the answer is no. And I think there's a question around what those innovations might be and I'm trying to pinpoint those and moving people towards those. We forgot to talk about Israel, by the way. Israel from an innovation export perspective kind of is quite serious. It's an interesting thing about like competing on innovation, right? I mean, obviously no one is going to compete with the US or China on, on technological innovation export, but... That's not to say that there's, I guess I'm not as interested in that question because I'm, I'm more interested in like, a, are there gaps that various African innovators 
may actually end up being well positioned to fill. So when, when we talk about Israel, the country, the innovation is sort of uh, in many ways built out of certain necessities specific to Israel itself. You know, things like agri-tech innovations just because like Israel is in a desert, right? And they've had to innovate around water security and around food security and things like that. And so they're well positioned because of the nature of their specific individual circumstances then to export. And so back to your question that we talked about in, I think, yeah, yeah, in the in the Global South episode where you asked what Africa's comparative advantage was. And then there's an interesting point about like the, the, the nature of certain types of businesses, you know, to the point of Israel, well positioned to solve problems elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. I think immediately we think of better organizing and digitizing fragmented and analog industries. And, and I'm thinking about a company like Flexport, right? And I wrote about this recently, the whole like African schlep thing. So like Stripe was a schlep and Flexport was a schlep. And these are huge, huge companies, successfully built companies in a very developed market, still nonetheless better organizing and better digitizing fragmented environments, right? M you know, maybe that's a, a, an interesting lens with which to to look at this. It's the only lens with, and, and look, and I, and I think a very prominent USVC once in a little session that we had with them was kind of talking about investing to to learn, to see the, what does the Silicon Valley guys like saying, pattern match. And we talk about it a lot of the, you know, the competitive advantage of looking at everyone else, as well as seeing our context, there's a lot of value to, to that. And the cool thing about these kind of case studies is that, you know, the, these guys saw what no one else would see because they were putting their money to learning and seeing value in, in, in learning from ecosystems that weren't like theirs or that they didn't have prejudices about. And, and I guarantee you, a lot of winners, when we look back, probably a few decades' time, are going to be the people that paid attention. Yeah, well said. I really like that. That's it for this week's episode of The Flip. Next week, we have a special episode co-produced with Osaruman Osamui, founder and author of The Subtext and one of the foremost analysts and writers in our tech ecosystem. So please do hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get that episode straight to your feed. We also have a lot to say over on social media. You can follow us at The Flip Africa, as do we on our newsletter. We publish a weekly essay every Sunday, and you can subscribe on our website, theflip.africa. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.